The scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. This passage uh, reminds us that we are to be submissive to um, the authorities here on this earth, but it's also, I think, good to remind us that um, that's just a test. We first have to be submissive to God before we can be submissive to earthly authorities as well. And even Jesus became submissive um, to the earthly powers that were present in his day that uh, he could have called you know, any number of defenses and set things right, but he was willing to submit to the authority that was over him. So again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Be subject, to the Lord, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise the who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because of Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I invite you to turn back to Genesis chapter 49, and we'll be concluding our study of the book of Genesis for now uh, with this last section of chapter 49 and chapter 50. going to be reading this in three separate sections, representing kind of the three scenes of this closing passage. As I've already alluded to, the question of evil and suffering in the world is one that's very difficult to address. It's somewhat easy to talk about it, but it's very easy to enter it experientially, to face suffering, to face evil, and to respond to it in the way that Jesus himself did as described here in the book of Peter, or as Joseph did. The three scenes, first we have the death and burial of the patriarch Jacob. The second scene then, Joseph's brothers come to Joseph after their father has died with an appeal for his grace, for his forgiveness. 
And the closing scene of Genesis is the death of Joseph himself. And there are also three kind of big thematic words in scripture that I would like to just attach to these three scenes. I think they illustrate these three words uh, beautifully. You know the three words. Uh, we're told by the Apostle Paul that of these three, one of them endures forever because all the others become pointless in the new heavens and the new earth where ultimate reality is present. Jesus himself is there and we see him face to face. But all three are to be an active, real part of our life here now, today. These three words, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And we're going to take them in just a little different order. Faith, love, and hope as representative of these three scenes. How does one not only talk to those who are suffering, but how does one experience suffering themselves? Whether it's emotional, physical, relational. How does one keep going? in the face of suffering. Is it possible to maintain faith in God's promises? God's promise of a new heaven and a new earth, of a world put back to rights. Is it possible to maintain faith? Is it possible to continue to hope for that new day when there is so much evil and suffering? When we face even deep sense of personal loss and pain? Maybe even more poignant than hope is the question, is it possible to love a God who we believe is all-powerful in the face of this sort of evil and suffering? The basic premise of this passage, the basic premise of Joseph's statement of faith is that God is actively weaving the tapestry of your life. He's actively weaving this tapestry. And there is a world that is also filled with evil. There's evil present. And others are throwing these random strands of evil and suffering, these irregular threads, into the loom, intending to create a chaotic-looking tapestry. But God takes those intentions for evil and weaves the tapestry of your life in such a way that the final ultimate outcome is a beautiful tapestry. Others intending evil, others weaving with the intent for evil, God reweaving the tapestry for good. Hard to grasp, but that's the message of scripture. It's the message of Romans 8, verse 28. And it's our hope. Let's begin with the first scene, Genesis 49, verses 29 through chapter 50, verse 14. The death of Jacob, a picture of faith. This is right after Joseph has Jacob has blessed his sons. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. 
Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Joseph finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the, thre the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And we'll pause there for the moment. The death of Jacob, how he died, his closing statements are an incredible statement of faith. Remember, Abraham traveled to Egypt, but he went back home. Isaac traveled to Egypt, but he went back home. Jacob goes to Egypt and dies there. So he's considering, my fathers are buried back in the land that God has promised to us. This land that God is going to give to us. And they hadn't really inhabited yet. They were just kind of there as strangers and pilgrims, foreigners. Loosely anchored, living in tents. But Isaac tells his sons, I believe God's promise. God is going to establish us there in this place. I'm about to die. I'm going to be, and I love this language, I'm going to be gathered to my people. Bury me with 
my father's. There's very specific instruction. Previously, he had mentioned his death and what he wanted them to do. And now he goes into very explicit detail about the exact place. And why did that place matter? Because God was going to give them the land. And this was going to be at the very heart of God's covenant promise for them. And he wanted to be buried there. These instructions were rooted in his confidence that the promise given by God to Abraham, to Isaac, and reaffirmed to him would actually come to pass. Jacob believed God. He was a man of faith. And then he dies. And I want you to consider, while Jacob was likely a wealthy man in the land of Canaan, he was a shepherd. He was not a highly cultured man. He was a man of the flocks and the herds. And now he is in the cultural epicenter of the known world. In Egypt, where they know how to embalm bodies, among many other things. And here he is, and he dies there. He's, he's a foreigner. He doesn't belong in Egypt. He's been wandering as a family for three generations. Now here he dies in Egypt. And he's embalmed. A 40-day process. And I suppose most of the children here are closer to understanding what that is than most of us who haven't studied our ancient Egyptian history for you know, 30, 40, 50 years. But this was an extensive process where they literally removed all the organs from the body and they tried to carefully preserve the body and put them in mummy form and then would put them in a sarcophagus shaped similar to a human form to preserve them. And this was, of course, primarily for the wealthy people. A poor man might simply be buried quickly. Someone of some good standing might be salted down so he, his body would be preserved for a period of time. But someone of stature in Egypt was embalmed in this way, a 40-day process. And historians tell us that there were multiple levels. There were the ordinary embalmers who did most of the people. But when it came to royalty, the physicians were called, the experts, the true gurus. Okay, and that's what we've got here. Jacob, this poor shepherd, wandering into Egypt, trying to survive, looking for food, is now given the highest honor in death a man could ever be given, right next to a pharaoh himself. And so the days of mourning for a pharaoh was 72 days. The Egyptians mourned for Jacob 70 days. They bestowed on him incredible honor. They recognized that this was an esteemed patriarch. This was Joseph's father. And this is a bit of a reflection on who Joseph was in Egypt at that time. Jacob is being honored by the Egyptians. And of course, they would have loved to have this man of great honor placed in a public building of some sort where they... Egyptians for centuries to come could see his sarcophagus, could honor him as a great patriarch of one of their esteemed leaders. But no, Jacob said, I want to be buried back with 
my fathers. Back in Canaan, back in the land God has promised us. And I want you just to reflect. One of the things God is teaching his people here is that he does have a Canaan. He does have a promised land for his people that is not yet. And our experience, caught in this struggle of life, in suffering, uh, sometimes in poverty, and sometimes in sickness, and sometimes in blessing, like Joseph, we're not home yet. We are in Egypt. We are strangers and foreigners. We're pilgrims. There's work to be done here, but we're wandering. Our hope is somewhere else. Our hope is in a new heavens and a new earth, as Peter describes it. And this, too, is one of the great quandaries of the Christian. How do we live in our world? How do we live in Egypt? How do we live in Babylon? Or even how do we live in the promised land that's not completely ridded yet of all pagans? How do we live in that space? Being faithful to God. That's the test Israel's going to face. That's the test we're facing. Jacob wanted to be buried in the promised land. And this is no ordinary now funeral procession, uh, even for that day. Most remarkable. And again, scholars tell us that there's basically three clusters in this procession going back to Canaan. And this is a significant journey. Pharaoh not only says, okay, Jacob, you're free to take your dad back to Canaan and bury him there in the graves of his fathers. No, he brings all the resources of Egypt into this incredible procession for this patriarch, this father of Joseph. So we have three clusters. First is Egypt's elite. And the scriptures describe this as all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of Pharaoh's household, and the elders of the land of Egypt. <clears throat> Our parallel likely is all the members of the Senate and all the members of Congress and the presidential cabinet and the justices of the courts of the land all gather together, decked out in their best, and they head off to lead the procession of the burial of this man, Jacob. Following that group of Egypt's elite is Jacob's family. The entire household of Joseph, the household of his brothers, all of his father's household, this incredible company of people. This is 17 years after they came down as a group of 70. And it's likely much, much larger now. But the family, apart from just the youngest children, follows Egypt's elite going back. And you might say this is Jacob's exodus going back to Canaan. Very different exodus than they're going to have a couple hundred years later. Jacob's family going back. And then we're told that the military goes along, chariots and horsemen. And this was probably for security purposes. So you have the army following this procession, protecting this funeral procession as they go back to the promised land. It shouldn't surprise us that as this great company of Egypt appears on the Jordan River, the neighbors the residents of Canaan look up and say, what in the world is going on? And no doubt, there's a bit of terror 
initially, but then they realize they're crying, they're grieving, they're mourning. And I, I can only imagine, I can only imagine some of Jacob's old Canaanite buddies suddenly discovering this is old man Jacob's funeral procession coming back to town. I don't know what they thought. No idea, but this was Jacob. He's coming back, escorted by Egypt's elite, protected by Egypt's military might. And it's clearly Egyptian. Clearly Egyptian. They renamed the place based on this Egyptian presence. Here's a man... <clears throat> struggled with a life of deception, with being a deceiver. He dies in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen it far off, and confessed that he was a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth. And he's brought back to a place of rest in the promised land. The next section forms really the heart and soul of this passage, and I think the heart and soul of the entire story of Joseph. Let's read chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. And I want you just to consider Joseph's brothers have been a part of this procession. This is quite a radical change for them. Here they are now surrounded by Egypt's elite, protected by Egypt's army, their military. And why? Why have they got all this attention? Why do they have all this support? Why all this pomp? It's because their brother Joseph is second in command. That's why. It's not because of who Jacob was necessarily. It's not because of who they are. They're shepherds, herdsmen. And they get a true sense of Egypt's power and strength in this procession back to Palestine and now as they're coming back home and their minds begin to roll. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, or we might say when it finally sank in, really sank in, that their father Jacob was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It makes a lot of sense to me that the brothers are getting terrified as they consider the incredible power that is at Joseph's disposal the entire Egyptian military at the tips of his fingers. 
they are beginning to sense the true evil they had committed against their brother. And it's possible that their own hearts have been so full of hatred for so many years that they cannot imagine someone with a different posture. Seventeen years in Egypt had been prosperous, and they now realize it's because of Joseph's care for them. Their lives have been sustained by their brother that they hated, that they tried to kill. And they're beginning to wonder, is this just because dad's alive? Is that why Joseph's been nice to us? What's going to happen now that dad is gone? Was Joseph's generosity merely a temporary mask for his planned revenge once their father was gone? And the brothers send a message to Joseph. Remember, they're probably living out in the countryside in Goshen. Joseph in the center of power in the city. And people, scholars still debate, was it true that Jacob had said to his sons, by the way, once I'm gone, make this appeal to Joseph on my behalf? Most scholars I read said it was a pure fabrication. They believed it to be a fabrication. I don't know. I could see it being a fabrication. Hey, dad's gone. Dad, by the way, dad said, you know how children still play that card, right? Mom said they know they don't have much clout and authority, so they pull the dad card, the mom card. But he doesn't only pull the mom and dad card. He pulls the God card, your God card. Joseph, your dad said, don't do this. And by the way, uh, we, we also are the servants of the God of your father. They're begging. They're begging. They're desperate. And the brothers also come to him in person after that message has gotten there. And they fall down before him and say, listen, we are your servants. And I'm just, just wondering how often they thought about Joseph's dream as they made the journey to see Joseph. Here they are, now on their knees before Joseph. Joseph's response is love on display. We see Jacob's life is rooted in faith. We understand that Joseph's life is also rooted in a deep faith in God, and we see that beginning to, to go on display here in new ways. But when he sees their fear, their terror, and he recognizes the power he has to destroy their lives, but their contrition, their sorrow, the terror they experience, Joseph weeps. And I would suggest that for a person of faith, man or woman, a person of faith in God, it is a deep sorrow to be viewed as an angry, malevolent person who seeks to do harm. And that's what Joseph is being charged with. Joseph, whose faith is rooted in God, it's being suggested now by his brothers that this niceness, this generosity, this care that he's extended really is just a very thinly veiled shroud 
of an angry man waiting for his vengeance. Joseph weeps. And he said, please do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Joseph recognizes that this kind of justice and vengeance belongs to no one except to God. God is the one who needs to sort these things out ultimately. So first is this this word of comfort to them. Don't be afraid. Second, he clearly acknowledges their evil. There is nothing in Joseph's language that diminishes the evil that they have done, the evil that they have intended. You know, there is a sort of kind of forgiveness that just glosses over what actually happened. And say, hey, it's all good. No, Joseph doesn't say, it's all good. He said, let's be honest about this. You actually intended evil. That was your intent. God, as the master weaver, took your evil intentions that produced evil actions and rewove that tapestry into something we can all call good. This isn't about calling evil good. It's calling evil evil, but saying God is the kind of God who is at work in the circumstances of the world, that he takes real evil and is present in it in such a way that he accomplishes good. And what's his purpose in that redeeming, that reweaving of evil? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And in Joseph's case, that was particularly saved from famine. But it reminds us that this God is actually a saving God. He is not an out-to-get-you kind of God. He's a God that wants to save. He's a God that wants to salvage and restore. He's not out to get you. He's out to save you. Is your God that kind of God? Can you trust him in that kind of way? You know, forgiveness is a hard thing. It's a very hard thing. And it often occurs when someone is sinned against, they offer forgiveness. But it rarely occurs fully, completely in an instant. It may be offered, but the process of restoration is long and arduous. This is not merely from the side of the one who is wrong, but also from the one who did the wrong. Sometimes when we sin against another, it takes us years to begin to see the seriousness of the sin we've committed against someone else. It's as though the light comes on slowly, and we don't get it. And then by God's grace, we wake up one day and we say, oh, something else happens, and we begin to see it in more stark terms. We truly have sinned against someone. And so here, approximately you know, 35 years later, these brothers are saying, what we did against you, Joseph, was evil. Joseph could have said, I know. And in a sense, he did say, I know. But I've been able to trust God, and I continue to trust 
this God of grace. He's the kind of God that is working in human experiences to bring about ultimate good. You see, we're the kind of people who want good at every turn. We want every piece of our human experience to be good, to be able to be identified singularly as good. And then we want it all to fit together into one beautiful, good picture. And we get distressed pretty quickly when one or two pieces do not appear to be good, but are actually filled with evil, pain, suffering, loss. Faith says, I must trust that God is out to save. Even when the individual strands appear to be evil, even when there's a lot of suffering, this God is a saving God, and he's not out to get us, he's out to save us. This is not merely about forgiving and then keeping a distance, though I'm sure initially there was probably some of that. But Joseph demonstrates a forgiveness that actively loves, actively provides, actively comforts, and actively speaks kindly to those who intended evil to him. That's a remarkable love. Absolutely remarkable love. And we really see it in only one other place, more powerfully, more clearly, and that's in Jesus himself. Who, when he is on the cross, facing the most cruel death a human can experience, says, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. And God, in his son Jesus, goes to death to save his enemies. Joseph knew this God. He knew the God of Romans 8.28, and he knew that God is working for the good of those who love him. On the surface, things might look very different. Elizabeth Elliot, who saw numerous reversals in her life as a young missionary, and then the loss of two husbands, one murdered by the Alki Indians, the second slowly destroyed by cancer, said this, and I quote, the experiences of my life are not such that I could infer from them that God is good, gracious, and merciful. To have had one husband murdered and another one disintegrate, body, soul, and spirit through cancer, is not what you would call a proof of the love of God. In fact, there are many things and many times when it looks like just the opposite. But that is not how a Christian judges things by sight. She continues, my belief in the love of God is not by inference or instinct. It is by faith. To apprehend God's sovereignty working in that love is, we must say it, the last and highest victory of the faith that overcomes the world. So how is, how is your faith doing? Can you trust God when it seems as though all kinds of evil things are stacked against you? Things are falling apart. You're hurting, suffering. The loss, the pain is almost overwhelming. Can you trust that God is able to 
to bring about ultimate good in the face of real evil. This God who is working for the good of those who love him is also a sovereign God, and he works all things to our good. He doesn't just use selective things. This is not the same as saying all things are good. Some things are evil. Some things are terribly bad. Some things are horrifically broken. But God is able, this sovereign God is able to take even those things and work them in such a way that ultimate good is accomplished. Since God is all-powerful, he is able to achieve his intended end of good no matter how horrific the circumstances, how tragic the loss, how evil the perpetrators, how painful the betrayal. All things. All things. Nothing excluded. God is able on behalf of those who love him. And I think maybe the most remarkable thing is that we can actually know this and we can actually live by it today. That's the invitation. Not to hang on to it that hopefully someday I will know it, someday I will experience it, someday I can actually see the good and then I can trust that God is good in those kinds of ways. Joseph did in his lifetime. Jesus did in his lifetime, right to his death. And we don't need to wait until the end when we actually see the good that God has accomplished in us in the midst of hardship. We can know it now by faith. And when we know it now by faith, we can extend grace and forgiveness to people who are intending evil against us, like Joseph did. We can extend grace and forgiveness because this God in his sovereign rule can use all things for ultimate good. This God is both sovereign and good. An incredible demonstration of the love of God poured out through Joseph to his brothers. He loves them. He forgives them. He speaks tenderly to them. The famine's long gone, but he says, listen, I'll care for you. I will care for you. I will care for your little ones. Verse 22, so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And if you want to do an interesting study, start doing a little study on the ages of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. There's some incredible mathematical stuff going on there. Uh, enough so that some people wonder if it was actually their age. I think God understands the mathematics behind it uh, and does some fantastic things with those ages. But 110 years old, which incidentally was the ideal life for an Egyptian. Like three score years and 10 for the psalmist, 110 years is a good full life for an Egyptian. God gives Joseph 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. He gets to see his great grandchildren. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. This, this name maker, it's as though he adopted back one of his grandsons. 
that his father had adopted from him, his son, Manasseh. Now he adopts back one of the grandsons. And this maker, the name simply means to sell, to betray to others. It's as though they're remembering Joseph's story in the third generation. And Joseph says, by the way, can I have him as my son? And the son of Manasseh, maker, was counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. And I want you to listen to these words of hope. God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. God will visit you. And you know, those are the words to us today. God will visit you. God is going to visit us again. And he's going to deliver us. There was, a, there was an incredible exodus nearly 1,500 years ago when those thousands and thousands of people left Egypt under the sovereign hand and care of God. And Moses, we read in Exodus, is sure to pick up Joseph's sarcophagus that contains his bones. And Joseph is a part of the exodus. An exodus that he didn't see in his day. But by faith, he trusted this God who would deliver his people. And he hoped to the very end. And this hope is not some sort of kind of ah, wishful, hopeful thinking. This is a confidence in a God who made promises. Joseph trusted him. In a God who was present, redeeming in the midst of evil. And so Joseph was able to extend love, grace, and forgiveness. And even as he was dying, his hope was fixed securely on this God who would bring them all safely back home to the promised land. I ask you to consider, what would your life be like if you were able to trust God in that kind of way? What kind of love would you demonstrate toward people who have wronged you in the past, toward people who may be wronging you today? What kind of love would you put on display to a watching world toward a God who you confidently believe, even in the midst of suffering, is going to bring about some good, some ultimate good, even in the face of suffering, whether it's physical, emotional, whatever's going on. Can you trust God in that way? This story does point us to the ultimate good. The ultimate salvation that was accomplished in even more remarkable circumstances when God's son, the sinless one, the rabbi, the healer, the prophet, the giver of bread, the calmer of storms, the raiser of the dead, himself caught in the tangled web of religion and politics, is marched off to death on a cruel cross. The mobs are crying, 
Crucify him, crucify him. There's hatred in the eyes of many. And yet, he trusted himself to the Father who judges righteously and surrendered his life on that cruel cross. And what others intended for evil, God rewove for good. And he was able to accomplish that good. He was able to achieve that ultimate good, and he's still achieving that ultimate good today as he continues to save many people alive. Can he not also do that in your present moments of distress, in your most keen disappointment, in the face of betrayal? Is your faith rooted in the promise of God in such a way that you can extend love and forgiveness to those who have wronged you and rest in the hope of a world fully restored? This is our God. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, it's so easy for us to fabricate a lesser God, a God who is held victim by evil in the world, a God who would fix everything about our human experience and yet for some reason is unable to do so. Lord, nurture within our hearts a deep abiding faith that you, in fact, are the one sovereign God, above all, over all. That, yes, there is evil in the world, in fact, much evil, but you are the kind of God who can be present in those circumstances of evil and reweave them into a tapestry of beauty. Equip us to love generously and to hope from the depths of our souls for the full and final restoration. Kindle that kind of faith in our hearts so that we might love you more fully. In Jesus' name, amen.